Hey guys, it's Friday. We've made it and I'm so excited because I have a special guest with me today. He is the creator, producer, and host of the podcast Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs. Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really happy that we uh, are able to to do this together. This is great. I'm so excited. So tell my listeners a little bit about Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs. Okay, well, it's a history podcast first, but it's a history podcast about shipwrecks and, and other maritime events throughout history. There are some episodes that don't have any shipwrecks in them, but primarily it is a history podcast. And I, I really try to make sure that I tell the stories behind the stories, the stories of the people that were on the ship, the politics at the time, everything that was going on in the world that led up to these events happening. So for me, it's really all about the stories, not just that there was a shipwreck. Right. And your each one of your episodes is just so beautifully written and produced. It's one of my favorites. I've told you a million times. So I'm <laughs> so you glad so you're much. here. I'm so glad that we get to cover this case today. You guys can subscribe and download Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs wherever you listen. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. He's everywhere. It's one of my absolute favorite, favorite podcasts. I've gotten many people hooked on it. You will be too. And I want you guys all to know that my newfound fascination and interest with shipwrecks and these crazy historical tales, some of them are crimey, some of them are murdery, and it's all because of Rich's podcast. So you guys have to listen. Trust me, you're going to love it. He has the coolest guests. He's the coolest host. You guys, I cannot get enough of the accents of your guests, I've told you. <laughs> Keep them coming. I love them so much. You guys are going to love it. I promise you. Let me know what you guys think. So, Rich, thank you so much again for being with me today. Shall we get into today's case? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Let's do this. So Dr. Harvey Crippen was born Howley Harvey Crippen on September 11th, 1862 in Coldwater, Michigan. Although little is known about Harvey as a child, we know more than enough about him as an adult. Crippen showed a keen interest for medicine at a very young age and would go on to study in Indiana and California before enrolling into the Michigan Homeopathic Medical School and then transferring to the Cleveland Homeopathic Medical College, where he graduated with his degree in 1884. After graduating, Dr. Crippen fell in love with his first wife, Charlotte. She was an Irish nurse, and together they had a son who was born in 1889, whom they named Howley Otto. Sadly, their love affair would not last long. Charlotte suddenly passed away of apoplexy in January 1892. Dr. Crippen was a loving father who did his best to raise his only son after Charlotte's death, but found himself struggling to find that balance to be the father that Howley needed, as well as being successful in his professional life. Coming to the realization that he had to choose one over the other, Dr. Crippen did what he felt was best for little Howley, moving the toddler in with his grandparents, Andres Skinner Crippen and Myron Augustus Crippen in San Jose, California, where the couple owned and managed a very successful dry goods store. 
With little Howley now in the hands of his grandparents, Harvey was able to focus solely on his career, knowing that his son was in good hands. Now he felt more comfortable making his next professional move to New York, where he worked for Dr. Munyon's pharmaceutical company. With a steady income and blossoming career, Dr. Crippen was doing very well in life and again found himself in a relationship, this time with an extravagant 19-year-old woman named Corrine Cora Turner, who also went by the stage name of Belle Elmore. Born in Brooklyn, New York, she was the daughter to a Russian-Polish immigrant father and a German mother. She was a dominant, voluptuous woman with an overbearing and assertive personality, which was very much the doctor's opposite, but the two found love in each other despite the doctor's introverted nature, and the two married in New Jersey in 1892. By 1897, Munyon's homeopathic remedies was a booming business, and Dr. Crippen was tasked with opening the company's first overseas office in London. But Cora wasn't ready to move to London just yet, and she stayed behind in Philadelphia. With her husband away, Cora continued pursuing a career in singing and acting, all the while carrying on with numerous affairs. But her career was not taking off like she had hoped. So she joined her husband in London, hoping to make something of herself in London's theater district. She tirelessly auditioned as an actor, singer, and even tried opera. Sadly for Cora, her talents were not as big as her ambitions, and she failed rather miserably to find work. But Cora enjoyed the lavish theater lifestyle. She was gregarious and loved to have fun. All the while, she didn't mind spending Dr. Crippen's newfound wealth. Crippen did his best to help her spending much of his time promoting her and making connections. This proved to be problematic for Crippen's employer, and in 1899, he was fired from Munyon's homeopathic remedies for spending too much of his time on Cora's career. The couple had very different lifestyles and personalities, so it isn't surprising they began to drift apart. Cora has been described as a blousy, heavy-drinking nightmare, vain, bullying, and promiscuous. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Your dream woman, right? (laughs) Cora, who often used her stage name, Belle Elmore, had sporadic and unimpressive work, and Crippen was out of a job entirely. They were forced to leave their home in fashionable Piccadilly to the more affordable Bloomsbury area. They also had to cut their expenses and scale back on the lifestyle that Belle desperately craved. But Crippen was not one to give up, and by 1900, he was soon making a respectable income again as a manager at Jurat's Institute for the Deaf, an organization with a very shady history. But it was here where he hired 18-year-old Ethel Leneve to be a secretary. Leneve was the complete opposite of Cora, delicate, feminine, and demure. Dr. Crippen fell in love with her almost instantly, and the two began a relationship. By 1905, Crippen could afford a nicer home and bought the house at 39 Hilldrop Crescent in London. Cora, as Belle Elmore, loved the new home in its ample space for entertaining. She was excited to be returning to her lavish lifestyle and joined the Music Hall's Ladies Guild to further her connections. She continued on with her multiple affairs with men and seemed quite happy with this new situation. Crippen, too, was happy. He was in love with Ethel and Eve and had long since stopped having sex with Cora. One feature of his beautiful new home was separate bedrooms, and Cora didn't seem to mind. 
In fact, she insisted on bringing in lodgers to produce extra income and, in her mind, fund her extravagant lifestyle and numerous affairs. But Dr. Crippen didn't realize that Cora had other motivations. In December of 1906, Dr. Crippen unexpectedly came home from work early to find Cora in bed with one of the young men, a student, in fact, who was renting a room in their home. Although their marriage had been declining for some time, Cora's affairs had always been behind the scenes. Crippen sought comfort in the arms of his new love, Ethel Eve. The marriage was now effectively over, and they both knew it. But probably out of convenience, they both continued living in the large home with extra bedrooms. Cora knew Crippen was having an affair, but didn't know the identity of the mystery woman. But when her friends at the Ladies' Guild saw Crippen and Leneve out on the town, dining together, they were more than happy to inform Cora. She put on a big show, acted surprised, and played the part of a virtuous wife and innocent victim. When Leneve became pregnant by Crippen, Cora was outraged. But Leneve had a miscarriage before Crippen could even broach the subject with Cora. Nevertheless, by late 1909, Dr. Crippen and Cora were at each other's throats at 39 Hilldrop Crescent. Living inside the home was extremely unpleasant, and Cora threatened to ruin Crippen's reputation by spreading word of his affair. In December of 1909, Crippen told his colleague, Dr. John Burroughs, that Cora's health was declining, and he was concerned about her, planting the seed for what was to come. On the evening of January 31st, 1910, the Crippens hosted a dinner party for their good friends Paul and Clara Martinetti. The evening was lovely and the company was delightful as always, but that ship sailed when Cora, for reasons unknown, became irate and for the strangest reason, I want to know what really tipped her off. (laughs) Cora got so upset that the doctor did not accompany their dear friend Paul to the restroom when Paul had politely excused himself from the table to do so, you know, use the restroom alone. So, not only did she think Paul was incapable of making it to the restroom on his own, but she also felt it necessary for Dr. Crippen to actually accompany him in there. Cora screamed obscenities at the doctor in front of their company and belittled him to his very core. As you can imagine from that moment on, things inside the house were a little awkward and uncomfortable for the guests. So it was around 1 a.m., now February 1st, that the Crippens and the Martinettis said goodnight to one another, and Paul and Clara thanked the Crippens for a lovely evening, at least the first half of it, before they departed home. This would be the last time that Cora was seen alive. Well, coincidentally, Cora, just about a month prior, had threatened to leave the doctor, but not only leave him, but drain his bank account and take all the money with her. Dr. Crippen was questioned by Cora's friends, co-workers at the music hall, and her fans when they noticed that she was nowhere to be found, to which Dr. Crippen had said that Cora had returned to her home country of the United States and that there was nothing to worry about. Relieved and happy for Cora, the doctor's tale of her travels was believed, kind of, sort of. It was two months later, and no one had seen or heard from Cora. But there was the doctor once again with an explanation, this time a somber one. Cora, he said, had suddenly passed away while in the United States of a fast-progressing illness and had been cremated in California. The doctor announced her passing in an obituary he placed in the newspaper. This came as a shock to most. Cora was a healthy lady. How could she have just passed so suddenly? 
those who love Cora mourn, but the news just didn't sit well with them. Was it possible the mild-mannered doctor could have been hiding the truth about Cora's whereabouts? Or did she leave the doctor as she had threatened to just a month prior? It wasn't clear, no one knew the truth, that was until Dr. Crippen was seen with a woman. A woman who wasn't Cora, but instead his mistress. By the end of the month of February, the mistress had moved into the Crippen's home at 39 Hill Drop Crescent, making herself very comfortable, even wearing Cora's clothes, her jewelries, and her fur. And that's when those who had been concerned about Cora reported her disappearance to Chief Inspector Walter Dew of Scotland Yard. Among these rising suspicions, Chief Inspector Dew visited 39 Hill Drop Crescent to interview Dr. Crippen and poke around the home. But now the doctor's story had changed. Crippen now claimed Cora had left him for an American man named Bruce Miller, who Cora had known since 1903. He explained that he was really embarrassed about Cora leaving him and didn't want it to become publicly known. So he made up this story about her death. Inspector Dew believed Crippen, at least initially, but he wished to speak with Cora in person to confirm her safety. Crippen claimed he didn't know where Cora was, but volunteered to place announcements in the newspapers asking Cora to get in touch with Chief Inspector Dew. The heat was on now, and Crippen sensed it. The following day after Dew's interview, Crippen and Leneve fled England, traveling first to Brussels and finally to Antwerp, where they purchased tickets aboard the SS Montrose, bound for Quebec, Canada. The couple traveled in disguise as father and son. Crippen shaved his mustache and Leneve oddly dressed as a boy. Back in London, police heard that the occupants of 39 Hilldrop Crescent were missing. Multiple searches of the doctor's home turned up nothing. Until the police made their way into the cellar, discovering freshly loosened bricks that made up the flooring down there. This was their fourth search in just two days. Upon moving those bricks, one by one, they discovered the badly decomposing body of a dismembered woman who was missing her head, her limbs, and skeleton. The partial remains were confirmed to be that of Cora, who they identified through a scar that was left on her abdomen from a surgery. Cora had been poisoned with hyoscine before her dismemberment. Hyoscine was a medicine that was typically used for motion sickness, but could be lethal when taken in high doses. It was also commonly used in mental facilities to subdue patients. Dr. Crippen didn't just use it to calm Cora. Instead, he ordered it straight from a chemist, Lewis and Burroughs, to put Cora to rest forever. On the Montrose, first-class passengers and crew found themselves staring at this father-son duo who seemed to be a little too affectionate towards each other to be distant family, let alone father and son. Puzzled, they just couldn't wrap their heads around what they had been seeing. I mean, you guys, imagine looking over at who you believe to be father and son, and you see them kissing and cuddling as if they're on their honeymoon. Yeah, that was the doctor and Ethel. Gross. The couple, realizing that they had been identified by passengers, but with obviously nowhere to go, make their way to the second-class deck in a failed attempt of going into hiding. Unable to take any more of the couple's strange behavior and all of the complaints from the passengers, Captain Henry Kendall, who had recognized the wanted couple from the newspaper he brought on board with him, utilized the newly installed technology on the ship to notify authorities of his fugitive passengers. 
The Marconi Wireless Radio sent a telegram to Scotland Yard and Chief Inspector Walter Dew in record time. The telegram read, Have strong suspicions that Crippen, London seller murderer, and the accomplice are among saloon passengers. Mustache taken off, growing beard, accomplice dressed as a boy, manner and build undoubtedly a girl. End quote. This would be the first time a technology of this kind was utilized to notify authorities of a wanted criminal. Newspapers and media were glued to the sensational story of lovers on the run via the high seas, tracking the location of the ship as it made its way to Canada, just waiting for it to reach port. Dew and his officers immediately boarded the White Star Liner SS Laurentic headed for Quebec, Canada, and because this ship was much faster than the Montreux sent Crippen and Ethel were aboard, they'd arrive at port one full day before the couple, ensuring an arrest before they could even think about disembarking. On July 31st, to Crippen's delight, Dew, who was disguised as a pilot, invited Dr. Crippen to meet the rest of the pilots on board the vessel. But the excitement was short-lived when Dew removed his disguise, looked at Crippen and said, Good morning, Dr. Crippen. Do you know me? I'm Inspector Dew from Scotland Yard. With relief, Dr. Crippen replied, Thank God it's over. The suspense has been too great. I couldn't stand it any longer. Extending both of his arms towards Dew, welcoming a cold set of handcuffs that Dew secured to his wrists. It was fortunate for Walter Dew that the Montrose was bound for Canada and not the United States. Canada was a dominion of the United Kingdom at the time, and Dew maintained jurisdiction, which would not be the case if the couple landed in the U.S. Crippen and Leneve were detained for three weeks before being escorted back to London, where Crippen was charged with the murder of Cora, and Leneve was charged with being accessory to murder. They were to be tried separately. First, Dr. Crippen then Ethel and Eve. On October 18, 1910, at the Old Bailey, which is the central criminal court of England and Wales, the defense argued the body was not Cora, but an unknown woman placed there prior to Dr. Crippen's purchase of the home. But prosecutors presented evidence showing the scar matching Cora's abdomen. Pajamas found with the body that were purchased after the Crippens moved into the home and proof of Crippen pawning Cora's jewelry after her disappearance. In addition, toxicologists found traces of hyacinth in her body, and prosecutors showed records proving Dr. Crippen had purchased five grains of the drug on January 17th, just two weeks prior to Cora's disappearance. So I consulted my wife about this hyacinth. Oh, yeah. And she's a pharmacist. Uh Uh-huh. And she knew right away what class of drug it was and that it would be used for things like sedation or uh, motion sickness, things like that. And we talked about where it came from, and it, and it comes from a, a few different plants, uh, alkaloids, and not to get too technical down the <laughs> pharmacy rabbit hole. Um, but the reason I really talked to her was because I wanted to ask her about the dosing. Right. Now- it said he bought five grains. Now that's an antiquated measurement unit that you know I had to look it up, and it it was it was ridiculously small. But it turns out one grain is about sixty four or so milligrams. Oh wow! Okay, so I wanted to know well how much of this would you give to somebody as a normal dose, 
for the right reason. And it turned out to be much smaller than that. So he bought a lot more than a the normal dosage. More. And I read that a dose of anywhere from uh, 10 to 17 milligrams could be lethal. Wow. Five grains is about 350 milligrams. So I, I just had to f- find that out for myself, how much that was and whether it was enough to kill Cora. And it turns out it's more than enough, way more than <laughs> was needed to kill one person. That's interesting. I couldn't help it. I had to I had to go down that path and find the answer yeah, to that. He really wanted her gone. Another bit of evidence against Crippen was that the body also appeared to be professionally dissected by a physician or somebody knowledgeable about human anatomy. All of this was very damning evidence against Dr. Crippen. Ethel and Eve might have been a helpful witness for Crippen, but he refused to allow her to testify in order to protect her reputation. The jury deliberated for 27 minutes, and Crippen was found guilty of murder and sentenced to death. He hatched a plan to commit suicide with broken glass from his eyeglass lenses, but guards were able to stop him before doing so. He was hanged on November 23, 1910, and buried in an unmarked grave. Laniv's trial only lasted one day, with her defense painting a picture of a young, shy, naive woman who was easily controlled by the older and more wise Dr. Crippen. She was found not guilty and released. Ethel Laniv married in 1915. She went on to have two children and lived a quiet life until her death in 1967. J.P. Crippen, a relative of Dr. Crippen, is trying to have the murder conviction overturned to clear the family name. Recent evidence might indicate that Dr. Crippen was innocent after all. DNA samples from the body did not match DNA from Cora's living relatives, and the remains may have actually belonged to a man. It's also curious that the body was dismembered after being poisoned. Modern forensic toxicologist John Trextrail told the BBC, a poisoner wants the death to appear natural so he can get a death certificate. This is the only case I know of where the victim was dismembered. It doesn't make sense. Others have also questioned why the torso was found in the cellar while the head and limbs were never found. Despite these discoveries, as of the publication of this episode, the case of Dr. Howley Harvey Crippen has not been reopened by the Central Criminal Court. There is an interesting connection between the story of Dr. Crippen and a horrible shipwreck disaster of which I have particular interest. If you recall, it was Captain Henry Kendall who helped identify Dr. Crippen and Ethel and Eve on board the SS Montrose and used the Marconi wireless radio to inform Scotland Yard. Captain Kendall would later become the captain of the RMS Empress of Ireland, a Canadian passenger liner. On May 24, 1914, on Captain Kendall's first voyage with this ship, the Empress of Ireland collided with the Norwegian vessel Storstad in the St. Lawrence River. The ship sank in just 14 minutes, killing 1,012 people including Captain Henry Kendall. This tragedy is referred to as Canada's Titanic. And that, you guys, is the story of Dr. Howley Harvey Crippen and his many a love affairs. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed it. Rich, thank you so much for being on the show again. 
You're welcome. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. It was super fun. I, I really enjoyed it. You guys download Rich's podcast, Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs. You can get it wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify. He's everywhere. You guys are just going to love it. I will see you back here solo next week for a brand new episode. Bye, guys.